This is Emerging Possibilities, powered by Volvo Group Australia. Here we talk to industry experts about the future of mobility and how it will shape both our lives and the world we live in. Hi, thanks for joining us for another episode of Emerging Possibilities, powered by Volvo Group Australia. I'm Matt Wood, and I'm also joined by my co-host, Tim Camilleri, our resident e-mobility. Our guest on this episode is Mark Jerick, founder and director of Movement. Mark, thanks for coming in. Thanks, guys. Great to be here. Maybe it's an idea to start by asking, what is Movement? So, Movement is a consulting firm on a mission. So, for us, that means helping organisations transition to cleaner energy in their vehicles and their fuels. So, my team all joined the company with that same mission in mind. And so we're all progressing towards that goal. And so we'll only take on projects that help the national fleet transition to to cleaner energy. And that's, I guess it's one of our USPs. And so for those who don't know what a consulting firm does, we work with fleets to help them unpack what is quite a complex puzzle in terms of shifting to cleaner energy for organizations such as whether it's Volvo or other vehicle manufacturers or even energy companies. It's about helping them understand what the market looks like and what those fleets are requiring. And then for government, we do advice on policy and strategy around transitioning to or incentivizing, supporting the shift to cleaner vehicles and fuels. And what's your background around in this area? Personally, I've always had a passion for vehicles and that could be bicycles, motorbikes, cars, trucks, planes. Do you whole... guys hang out at all? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. really That's why I invited my friends. Another ally. <laughs> that, that kind of that interest, that passion, led me to and a career, I guess, a degree in, in engineering. So that's where I started. And then I guess my career has had three phases. The first phase was really around working in the auto industry. So I started with cars and with Toyota in Australia. I actually spent seven years working in Volvo in your organization, and then got a bit of a social conscience and decided that transport sector wasn't doing enough socially or environmentally to address the challenges, particularly around climate change. So I went back, studied sustainability, and the, I guess that led to the second part of my career, which was working in government on programs to help business tra- uh, reduce their environmental impacts, whether that's energy, water, waste, emissions, And I did that for a couple of years, which helped me see that, I guess, the significant role that experts and consultants played in that space. And so that led me to the third phase of my career, which is doing what I do now, which is a sustainable transport consultant. And I did that for for the first few years in a couple of other different firms and for the last seven or eight years now, just running my own consultancy. Again, you know, only taking on the jobs that align with our mission. So seven or eight years... You've actually probably seen a really interesting part of that stage, right? Like I'm just thinking about what that timeline looks like, right? Like sort of pre-COVID, we basically went from a bushfire emergency where everyone was debating about what caused it to a lockdown pandemic. And now it's like we come out the other end and bang, it's like, well, that's just the last three years, right? That's that's what I mean, you know? So when you're talking like seven or eight years, like that must've been a slog initially, right? Look, it was. Strangely and ironically, we're asking, particularly in a policy space, we're asking the same questions today that we were a decade ago. And I've done 
countless reports for governments and for private organisations asking those questions around, oh, what policies do we need? Oh, what does the cost of ownership look like? What is, What are the barriers? Okay, just go and have a look at those other 10 reports. And not just from us, I mean, mm-hmm. you know, some of our competitors and peers as well. That side of things hasn't changed too much, but I think the willingness to actually act on that has probably changed. And particularly in the last three years, we've seen an explosion of interest and investment is probably the key difference. It's the investment from private sector firms, from vehicle manufacturers, from government in actually making some of this happen. So rather than just having a policy for policy's sake and pointing to it to say, we're good, actually action on what those policies are outlining and seeing yeah. implementation into these spaces. You know, it's about action rather than change. Yeah, yeah, mm. definitely. And look, I mean, I think the biggest difference in the last few years has been the focus on zero emission technologies as opposed to, let's call it energy efficiency or energy productivity. We've done a heap of work in that space in the past looking at how can fleets save costs and reduce their emissions through fuel efficiency. That space seems to have almost been abandoned. I know the federal government was looking at launching a program this year on energy productivity, but there's just sexy new shiny technologies. Everyone wants to focus on battery electric and hydrogen, and actually there's probably a big gap there that still needs filling. We were actually talking about that this morning, weren't we? Just how it's like gone from go to woe and say, hang on, there's a bit along the way. You can actually... There's other things. You know, it's not just about hydrogen. It's not just about electric. There are other pieces of the puzzle to being sustainable, to being more environmentally conscious. That's, you know, it's reassuring to hear that your focus still remains, I guess, that middle ground or that, you know... We cover that whole spectrum from Mm. just fleets looking at basic cost savings. And we don't just do work for fleets. We also do the work for government looking at policies to support that but also demonstrating technology. So that's a big part of what we do is technology demonstrations. If fleets want to know what a hydrogen truck looks like operating in the field or a battery electric, there's some independent testing that's either out there or needs to be done to actually help them support that. So, Was it always in a, a case where you were looking at these fleets for money? So like you said, incredibly, it's always fleet for money-saving purposes. They wanted more fuel-efficient vehicles to save money. Is that narrative changing for you? Like, are you seeing it's not just about the money? It's also now truly about, you know, the ESG goals, sustainability when it comes to these assessments? And if so, how are you doing that? Yeah, I think the ESG and then the corporate social responsibility are drivers, certainly increasing in importance or in priority. You're not going to see a fleet switching to a zero emission technology or fuel no. and no, adding no, 20% to their costs. Mm. But in the meantime, that premium can be subsidised by government. The question is, at what point does that subsidy or that support get pulled or reduced? But I think the driver isn't just cost savings. And actually, I think there's a lack of awareness out there about what the costs actually look like because there's different information sources, there's Mm -hmm. different stories about one application. And really, that's what it comes down to. It's about which application are you talking about. We've had a resounding theme when it comes to these conversations around information and, you know, it being at the forefront of people making informed decisions, getting enough information to make their decisions for themselves. And whether it's your TCO or, you know, other benefits you're realising Mm. through these, these changes, having a locked in and secure bit of information that you can give to people for them to make their own decisions on it and it's not just some bit of information from the internet that's going left or right in whichever way you want to see it. Yeah, that's a really good point actually because what we're finding and I suppose the demand for information which is probably Mm. what's keeping you well and truly occupied at the moment and you Tim is we've all grown up with internal combustion engines. Mm. If you're remotely sort of interested, everyone knows how they work. Yeah. Mm. 
once you start talking EV terminologies, like whether what's a kilowatt hour, what's an amp, like, mm. I mean, everyone has a basic idea of how electricity works, but what does it mean? Yes. And I think that's interesting. Oh, look, I think if you look at the, as I said, we've done a bit of work in the policy space as well. If you look at what are the top five or top 10 things you could do to increase the uptake of either low emission or zero emission technologies and fuels, there's a range of things in the top four or five that actually six, you know, five, six, seven, eight, nine, and 10 are all information. Mm. And I think that there's a big gap. I was listening to one of your other podcasts where you talked about the extra effort required to work with the end users of that technology to understand the implications. And that's an investment for a manufacturer such as yours. And I think there's a big gap out there for independent, trusted advisors. That's where we see our role. And we always work for the benefit of our client, which is typically, not typically, but usually the end user mm. around what does all this mean? You know, I'm hearing a cost over here and I'm hearing cost over here. They're vastly different. What's the reality look like for me? And that's where we probably spend a lot of our time and, and particularly unraveling some of the misinformation that fleets have seen. Yeah. Misinformation, is it more in the negative or more in the positive with the misinformation? Because, uh, you know, what we see is quite varied, I think, to be fair. Unrealistic yeah. claims. Yeah. Unre some, yeah. Yeah. Unre some, yeah. some is unrealistic claims, some is perhaps a poor understanding. And the, and the third one is understanding energy mm. in particularly in freight, you know, heavy vehicles that you guys mm. work in is really complex. Mm -hmm. And so actually segmenting the fleet, working out the energy use, understanding what the operational capabilities are, that's actually quite complex. And so I'm not suggesting it's deliberate misinformation, but there are some rules of thumb out there. So if you take the light vehicle space, you know, price parity and originally it was 2022, right? You, mm. Apparently you were going to be able to buy a, an EV for the same price as a petrol or diesel car. And we always knew, we knew that that was never going to happen. And then we've seen the goalpost shift to 2024. That's a you know, a year and a half away, right? And then it's 2025 and now it's further down the track. And I think just unraveling some of that for the people who are putting their money down and investing in this stuff is really important. And we don't sell anything. We've got no barrow to push in terms of a vested interest in what's there. It's just being an advocate for the, the client and helping them understand that really complex puzzle. I like that independent trusted advisor statement you made, like yeah. you know, having someone there in, in their court to unravel what's out there and find what the actual correct information yeah. is. Very strong and necessary part of this whole transition. Yeah, I agree. I, I suppose another thing I, I find interesting about this is like it's not an easy kind of path to be following. So what gets you out of bed in the morning? Like you can't run something like this just mm. half-heartedly, right? You've got to have a bit of dedication and passion for what you're doing. Absolutely. What motivates that? Look, I guess my career choices have always been find something you're interested in and then find a way to make it work and make it <laughs> make it pay the bills, right? I think it's probably a common thread, not just for me, but for the whole team is first and foremost, we're interested in the work. I mean, transport is going through a massive change, you know, something worth, more than what we've seen in the last century in terms mm. of the disruption. That's a really exciting place to work, particularly when you're kind of at the forefront of it as, as you guys are and also as we are in, in the advisory space. That's probably the biggest driver for me. Secondly, across the whole team is that dedication to the mission. We all have a social responsibility, I guess, and being able to get up in the morning and say, hey, we helped that organization reduce their emissions by X, Y, Z, or shift to EVs, which are going to help them with their energy independence, whatever that is. 
Well, I think it's also, also that. It's not just that one company. Like if you help a council or a state government yep. or whoever it is transition, then others will look at them and go, well, if they can do it, we can do it. And then the flow-on effect, yep. it's not a single transaction of change. It, on it flows. So I think pridefully, you probably sit a bit, completely sit a little bit higher than that and think that in helping one, you're helping others, you know, yep. and helping the overall transition to improvement of efficiencies, at least if not environmental and sustainability. Yeah, I, I think demonstrating those successful mm. case studies or examples mm. has a huge influence on the market. And so in addition to the demonstration is transfer of knowledge. So yep. a lot of our clients, you know, one of the big areas of pride that I get is we walk away and those clients know as much about EVs in that space in their application as mm. we do. And mm. we've helped them along that journey. So we'll help them for a period and then they're off and they can do the same thing that we do on their own. With your growth or new jobs as they come on and all the rest of it, do you see more you showing, demonstrating previous work and case studies as a strong selling point? Or do you find that a lot of your customers become your advocates as well and saying the movement team are trusted advisors, they've done a great job for us, they've really helped us along our journey. Is it both? Probably, yeah. Probably a bit of both, yeah. Yep. Um, we don't have that many public case studies out there, mm -hmm. and particularly with some clients that don't mm. want to be named or let me give you an example. So the use of data is actually very poor in the transport industry mm -hmm. in general and, and freight in particular. And so helping an organisation understand their data, use their data and apply it to actually build a business case that can be seen as a criticism, I guess, or an admission from their part that they actually weren't doing that part of it very well. So we try not to focus on that. It's sure. just about, well, you know, here's some insights. But well, taking them on that journey to enter your question, mm, Tim, mm. I think is we do have some clients who very much advocate for the way we've helped them. And mm. I guess that helps us in winning new work. Yeah, that's part of our approach. That's actually quite interesting. You say that because in a previous role, my role was to work with data with transport companies around their fuel mm. usage. And you're absolutely like the same conversation, right? So either, wow, let's do something about it, or are you telling me I don't know how to run my company? You don't know that I'm not across what I'm doing? And it was like, it was really interesting. That, quite that is, working with a fleet, that is the biggest challenge. You're not there to tell them they don't know what they're doing. Yeah. You're there to just help them find new ways to use what they've already got. But that can be quite challenging for someone who's in that role that, you know, their job is to work with data or find opportunities or understand technology around low rolling resistance tyres, aerodynamics, whatever it is. We did a lot of work in that space. Probably the last 18 to 24 months has been... <laughs> Zero emission vehicles, yep. zero emission vehicles. Yeah, so. of course. So with emerging technology, is it better to be an early adopter or a fast follower? Depends what you're trying to get out of it. If you want to position yourself as a leader, early adopter, absolutely. I think as an early adopter, there are probably high costs, but there's also benefits where you get to work with the suppliers, the technology promoters, for example, because they want to see what their products work with in the market as well. I mean, you guys have got some zero emission trucks out there in the market those early fleets you're working with, as well as the other OEMs, they want to see how the vehicle operates in the market. So I guess there's a bit more support up front as well. And then there's the headlines. There's a competitive advantage for an early user to go out there and say, hey, look, we're different. We've got these sustainability goals that we're achieving or we're, we're demonstrating the technology, helping the industry along the space. So it's probably a combination of those things. Yeah, right. I suppose the other... Um interesting kind of point to touch on. And I'll just touch on it briefly because that disappears down a rabbit hole, but like is is the whole um, <laughs> charging infrastructure and it's copping a little bit of criticism lately. And I suppose it's sort of like 
expanded exponentially with interest in EVs. So the more we're talking about them, the more criticism is being leveled at charging and stuff. Yeah, look, there's no doubt that charging is going to be essential to accelerating uptake of EVs. What that direct link is in terms of the level of influence is probably uh, somewhat debatable. We know that most people who have access to off-street parking at their home are going to charge up at night. I've been driving an EV for three years doing what we call granny charging, literally not having a separate charger, just whatever came with the vehicle, almost as a test to see, can I cope with that? It's actually been just fine doing that. You know, I, I probably fast charge maybe five or six times a year on a long trip and the rest of the time it's just a wall plug, 10 amp. As an organisation and the individuals within it, we probably think that there is already a, a lot of fast public charging out there for consumers, particularly given the number of vehicles in the market. And so, yes, we're going to have to build out more of that, but just throwing more money at fast public charging is, we think, probably a bit of a lazy approach to accelerating EV uptake. I Sounds mean, perfect to me. I mean, yeah. You know, my everyday life is quite chaotic, so. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, it's not just, and it's not just for those inner urban dwellers. I mean, you can drive from Cairns to Melbourne out to Adelaide probably just on the fast charging that's there. You could now, yeah. New South Wales has plans for, I think, a fast public charger every two or five kilometres in urban areas, mm -hmm. every 20 or 50 k's in regional areas. I mean, what's in place now is going to be sufficient. Let's focus on stuff that's actually better value for the taxpayer and that might be workplace so it might be more charging but it's workplace charging is much cheaper you it's a two grand charge not a hundred grand charge exactly, you know, for exactly. One, and you put in multiple of them and yep. they can be sitting there you know yep. the best thing about uh, it's, it's corny to say but abc always be charging you know if the vehicle's sitting there during the day at work why not charge it yeah because it's it is stationary it has the opportunity to do so can do it on a slow charger and you know use up the time but it can all also start playing games with either green or cheap energy yep. you know we're in a lower overall energy demand for the grid i agree with you you know situations mm. like that let's get the most out of What's the vehicle is being stationary. It doesn't need to be the 10-minute fast yep. charge and cost you whatever. It's the slow charge when it's sitting there. That Ab should be a emphasis. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, if the private sector wants to invest in charging, absolutely go for it. But government has limited funding. If it's got $500 million to spend and we already have some public charging, then where else could it spend money? And we know at the moment, not so much in the heavy vehicle space, although also... But in the light vehicle space, supply is the huge issue, right? You, we were talking before about waiting lists of anywhere between nine months and two years for an EV, as well as ICE vehicles. How do we fix that? You know, go out and build charging, sure, but it's not going to get more EVs on the road if you can't get the EV. So that's the number one barrier that we should be focusing on, whether that's supporting with local production, helping manufacturers build the business case to bring more vehicles here or heaven forbid, you know, regulations that require manufacturers to meet a CO2 target, which would help bring more vehicles. I'll drop this in just to make Matt laugh, but the last two weeks I've been in Europe. And yeah, thanks. <laughs> and the, you know, saying that number of vehicles coming into the country, like there are certain manufacturers over there that have zero EVs in Australia and would have in excess of a dozen models over in Europe. I think, you know, yeah. right, like we got, it's a little bit of a funny one because we do have the potential to mm. bolster up the infrastructure in Australia now where we're waiting for more numbers to come because, you know, that's a possibility because maybe the supply of those vehicles isn't actually, you know, we can't accelerate it any more than what we've got for the moment. But I think overall, increasingly options, you know, having something, more vehicles, more variety, more range of variety of what models are available would see a 
a bigger uptake. But it's one of those ones we've got to start playing, I think, and understanding is why are we only at 20 models currently? Why can't we yeah. be at more? Why can't we look to incentivize the uptake in other ways than just throwing money at fast charges that may never be used and may be in the wrong locations or over-catering for a demand? Yeah. You have a look at some of the statistics on the publicly available fast charges and it's pretty low. Yeah. Like considering the amount of money put into them, the money yeah. they're claiming on 20 or 30 cents per kilowatt hour and, yeah. and what they've been costed at, it's a pretty slow uptake. Yeah. And I think to your point, Matt, about the bad press on the availability of those because of being out of service or needing maintenance, I mean, I haven't seen too much on that. I don't know what the, the status is, but you would think if you're putting public money into that, then there would be a requirement to maintain that and asset in an operable condition for however long it is, two, five, ten years, whatever. I think that's a learning curve, to be fair. It's definitely happened in the past where the maintenance side of budgeting hasn't quite been there in some mm. publicly available charging, of government-owned or not. So that's a learning as part of a new Absolutely. a new space. But yeah, it's definitely something that needs to continue going forward to understand that those charging facilities are up and running. But Mark, you said you granny charge and mm. fast charge every now and then. I'm the same. Uh, this year... I think I've fast charged once in six months, yep. you know, and otherwise I haven't really relied on anything. I think the public, the only publicly available infrastructure I relied on is at destination charging yep. at car parks and things like that. That's it. There's no need for anything special or fast. And, you know, my car drives day in, day out. And I still have a novel feeling when I put my foot down on the, on the right pedal, as I imagine you are with your, your oh, one I, now. Absolutely. Yeah, still getting yeah. out of that. So, you know, my energy consumption might be a little bit higher than it needs to be, but nothing specially required in those charging infrastructure for the light vehicle. And even, you know, start talking about the heavy vehicles, you know, moving into that kind of space is that overall, unless you're 24 hours shifting them or doing quite extreme usage mm. on the electric heavy vehicles is overnight charging is sufficient as well. You know, yep. I don't like using the word slow charger, but, a, you know, a normal charger does the job and charges something, you know, overnight in six to 10 yeah. hours kind of stuff. You know, it's, it's up and running. It's easy. It's set and forget. Fast charging does have a place. and We're not dismissing yep. that, but it needs to be measured in its uptake and usage. And we're doing a lot of work in the bus industry as well, looking at electrification of public transport. And that's certainly something that we've seen. You know, there's this assumption that it's a big, heavy vehicle. It's got a massive battery, you know, 400 kilowatt hour batteries, mm. quite large as they will be in trucks. Mm. And therefore, you need to fast charge them. So you're going to have to do these fast charges overnight. And actually, you know what? You're not going to do it through a normal wall plug. No, charge, no, no, no. But You're not pulling your laptop out and plugging your bus battery. In many cases, you get away with AC charging. Yep. In some cases, slow DC. But the costs are a lot less than what people expect and mm. potentially the grid impact as well, depending on how many vehicles you've got there at the depot. But you can't drive it to Darwin. Isn't that what everyone says? Yeah. That's, like that's what everybody says. Yeah. Yeah. But I can't drive it to Darwin. <laughs> When's the last time you drove to Darwin? Yeah. Never, but I want yeah. the option. Uh, yeah, I yeah. need to have yeah. the opportunity yeah. to be able to drive to Darwin just on a whim, you know? So back to the data, we were talking about that before and, and working with many different kinds of fleets. We actually see that they think that their vehicles go long distances, but most of the, so light vehicles, most of them are doing 20 to 40 Ks a day. You wouldn't even need to charge it, you know, once a week, week let's yeah. say. To be fair, there are some vehicles that get used on a either a high rotation or long distance trips. Actually, just electrify that last. Just get yeah. that as a diesel or a petrol or whatever it is. Do the other 95% of your fleet that you don't have to worry about. And it's interesting, you know, coming back to information, coming back to data and understanding of what things actually do. Even you are having those same conversations. You ask someone, how far does your vehicle travel per day? Oh, hmm. it's we do 500 k's a day, every day. Uh, can, let's have a little show me. Yeah, yeah, show me. Yeah, show me. Well, actually, it's 120 kilometers yeah. a day at most, you <laughs> yeah. know. Yeah. So it's about that 
understanding and really we've spoken about range anxiety and all sorts of other mm. things as well as like if you can prove that this is the information the data and this you know that you are doing a maximum of x kilometers per day if you do back-to-back shifting or you do the one-off trip that does this that vehicle doesn't exceed the requirements of this product yeah. you know it's really delving into that understanding about showing people and proving to people what's possible when and i like your anecdote then about like do that one last. You know, mm. if that's the edge case, do it last. Let's progress one percent by one percent yeah. by one percent. And the conversations we have often is is we get the fringe case. We get the we want to electrify a garbage truck. Okay, what does it do? Oh, it does six hundred kilometers a day. What garbage truck does six hundred yeah, really? kilometers? You know, your area is fifty kilometers by fifty kilometers. There's no way you can possibly be doing that mm. in a shift. You know, and get the data out and have a look. You know, you're not doing anything like that. And if you were, that's your fringe case. That's not where we start. That's a progress point. To get to, so overall, you know, I think getting people to understand their data and their information and, and clarify their scope and helping them stepping through their transition is a very important part of trusted advisors like yourself. Yeah, and I think it comes back to that increasing level of knowledge out there to actually overcome some of the barriers that might not be real, but they're, they're perceptions. Mm-hmm. And you know, here's the evidence that says that might not be the best use of that vehicle, or you know, stage two is going to be, you can do all that 90% of your fleet very easily. Mm. And actually for these others, you can still shift it to a zero emission vehicle, whether that's electric or hydrogen or whatever it is, if you start making some changes in the organization. And that's the where we see a lot of the challenges. Yep. I just want to take a new energy vehicle, a zero emission vehicle, mm. drop it into my fleet, just and like done. the regular diesel or yep. petrol. And hopefully that's it, right? That's all I need to do. I don't want to look at, it's about, you touched on it, it's not about always zero emission, it's about lower fuel vehicles and all the rest of it. It's, it's about finding those efficiencies, whether it's in the vehicle, the product, or the operation. And I think the conversation needs to be had around the whole works of it. You know, how can we just do better? Yeah. What can we implement or change or shift or tweak that gets a better outcome overall, a more efficient outcome? Well, we've kind of been here before though, haven't we? Like if you think about like the phase out of the steam locomotive, right? Like it's not like somebody said on the 29th of July, all steam locomotives are going to be taken off the rails and you're going to have a diesel one for long distance and electric for suburban. Yeah. That didn't happen though. Like we still had, I'm pretty sure we still had steam locomotives operating in some areas in this country into the 1960s. Yeah. You know, it didn't just happen. You know, pardon the pun, but flick a switch, you know. Yeah. But that's, a, I think, the journey we still have to re- replicate again and say that we're not coming for every steam locomotive now you know we're coming it's about incremental change and yeah. slow shifts to help the transition finding the efficiencies finding the efficiency there we go we've kind of moved on a little bit from you and your team but i have a, a bit of a quirky question to ask of your team you know so they're passionate about evs and all the rest of it do most of them drive an ev or in some capacity so out of the six in my team i have two of us that already drive an ev two of us that have an order in one that's looking and just one that hasn't started yet. So, yeah, it's going to be a pretty high ratio. That's pretty good. That's pretty good. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. And uh, the backup question is that of the vehicles in the in the movement fleet, say, is there a particularly strange and interesting one that, you know? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah I can see where you're going <laughs> yeah. with it. Yeah. You know who I'm picking yeah, up. Yeah, yeah. So, Nathan on my team, he's our electromobility expert, let's say. So, he's got a Tesla in his family, which was originally his his first EV, but he's also got a Honda that he imported, a, a Honda E, which is maybe one of two in the country. Yeah, it's one of two in the country, it. yeah, man. So, mm. you've probably seen it all over social media. and It's bright blue. Yep. It's got a you know screen from left Absolutely. to right and all the rest yeah. of it. No, and, no. and look, I, what, what I think that demonstrates is actually the passion that I was talking about mm-hmm. before that's common to our team. You know, he embodies that certainly. 
in every sense, we work with AEVA, the Australian Electric Vehicle Association, mm-hmm. which is very much a user-focused association. And we work with them on helping plan conferences, presenting at their workshops and so forth. And it's not just a nine to five job for us. We live and breathe the the EV transition, but particularly the clean energy transition. Yeah, no, exactly. And I think, you know, overall, I I was trying to be a little bit cheeky, but overall, I think it shows as well, like the breadth of vehicles that are available in the use cases, you know, it is a small vehicle that does a perfect job. But yeah, it is, you know, also instilling, I guess, or sharing that passion the team has. It's not just about getting the token car and, you know, we drive EVs and that's it. It's about, you know, living and breathing and waking up and helping the industry transition, whether it is nine to five and there's a consulting uh, leg to it, or it's living, you know, it's it's being out there and helping the overall EV community. The cause. Or cause. There we go. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, Doing, it's, it it's, yeah. Doing it for the cause. Doing it for the cause. Wow. Yeah. This, this is escalating. <laughs> well, actually, what, what it allows, you know, Nathan's looked at that exploration of importing a vehicle, mm. and mm. It's, it's one of the channels or the pathways to increasing or addressing this supply problem that we have. Because yep. like New Zealand, they allow the importation of used EVs from other markets. And that's probably something we could do here that would actually move the needle on bringing EVs here. Maybe it would influence the manufacturers also to say, actually, if there's 5,000 vehicles being imported. Of this type, why don't I just provide them? Why don't we just provide them, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, I think, you know, overall, you talk about levers and things to bringing EV uptake and creating a secondhand market, but whilst we can artificially create a secondhand market through import, then that's also a great way of increasing uptake. Absolutely. Yep. So energy security is probably uh, not a bad topic to bring up because we've got a little bit of a fear of the unknown for some around electromobility and being reliant on an electric vehicle. But what sort of effect do you think EVs in general could have on on our own fuel security? Like what impact will that have on diesel security, do you think? Well, I I think it could be a massive shift. And particularly when you look at the rate of change of the different sectors within transport or different segments. We import a lot of oil and or diesel into the country and $25 billion a year or something like that in terms of the the oil import bill, right? And that's money that could be spent on, on other things. We have the potential with an electrified fleet or a hydrogen fleet in future to shift to 100% domestically produced fuel. Ultimately, that's a long-term shift. And the cost, due to the efficiencies of the drivetrain, excuse me, the cost for that is going to be much lower oh, from no, an it, energy perspective. It's not just the inefficiency of the drivetrains, it's the efficiencies of transportation as well. Like if you're, yeah. if you're creating it next to where your tank is, there is no transportation cost. You, yep. know, you can have those reduced as well. And again, it's another tick in the hat of efficiency overall. Well, well it exactly. can be provided. And again, long term, yep. it can be provided through this transition. Yeah. And look, there's certainly... Talk at the moment and a lot of focus on what the electricity market looks like and blackouts in areas and so forth. But actually the cost of running vehicles, whether that's private motorists, commercial vehicle fleets, truck fleets, bus fleets, the cost for that energy is a fifth of what it would be for importing diesel here and processing it and all of the other implications and support that we need around around fuel excise and things like that. So that shift to zero emission technologies and fuels will have a huge impact on, let's not call it energy security, let's call it energy self-sufficiency yeah, in terms yeah. of where we can produce that and use it. Yeah. Oh, we get to own it. We get to own our own supply chain, keep it in Australia, make it Australian-made. It's, and, uh, and look, and when you're talking to fleets, one of the things that they maybe don't want to focus on is, I don't want to manage that energy supply chain. I, mm. I, I run a fleet or our mm. organisation you know, moves water around or we sell widgets, whatever it is. 
The last thing we want to do is manage the solar panels on site and figure out what the best time for charging is and so forth. But there's an easy way around that. You can just buy power purchase agreement, for mm. example, which mm. gives you green energy. I mean, I, I think one of the most amazing things in this transition, and I still pinch myself every time I think about it, is if I'm working from home, which is a few times a week, taking energy from the sun and I'm putting it into my car. My car's driving around on sunshine. Mm. And I know it's a very utopian view and it's not oh. going to work for every fleet, but even on a commercial vehicle fleet, that can happen. You have a lot of warehouse space on the roof. You're pumping that into vehicles and, and whether it's stored in a battery, pumped into the grid and there's a exchange there, it's still happening, right? Yeah, no, I'm exactly the same. I think every time I, you know, I work home and my big giant battery on wheels is plugged into the charging port at home with solar running, you know, it's a nice feeling, you know, thinking about, I took it a little step further. I've automated it so that, you know, it can change the charging <laughs> rates as, a, yeah. as it goes through to get the most out of it. You know, try and cut my bill to nothing as much as I can. But overall, yeah, it, it is a great feeling. And it's not about even the Australian, you know, energy sovereignty or whatever it is. It, it's Tim's energy sovereignty. Yeah. I make it at home into my own car. It is nice to have that control, I guess, as well and self-reliance. Yeah, I think, but on that, you've got, you know, we keep our vehicles here for a long time in Australia. We're an expensive market to buy a vehicle for yeah. a start, right? So we've got every right to want to hold onto that vehicle for quite a while to make sure we get the yep. most amount of value out of yep. it. And I think, can you see that changing anytime soon? Because like it's, um, I think we've had a traditional model of like, you know, first life, second life, third life, yeah. and the average person isn't always running out and buying a brand new car every two or three years. So mm. is there going to be a shift there, do you think? I think the observation that we have an old fleet is very accurate. We did some work on this you know, for an Ostroads project where we looked at particularly trucks and the age of the truck fleet and how we might renew that that fleet. There's obviously safety benefits, there's emissions benefits, health benefits with doing that. I think the focus there is if you're accelerating the, the turnover of the fleet, you're not necessarily going to get zero and low emission vehicles into the front end of that fleet. So we're talking about people buying new vehicles, right? So if you put incentives in place to either get rid of the old vehicles out of the bottom of the funnel or to put more new vehicles in the top of the funnel, they're just buying new vehicles. That's not necessarily an incentive to buy zero emission vehicles. And so I think while it's an important policy area, and we looked at a, b a bunch of different policies that could be implemented there, I think you're going to need specific targeted incentives and disincentives for the uptake of zero emission vehicles. And it brings up an interesting conundrum here because in Australia, if you look at best practice around the world, policies are a combination of carrots and sticks, right? Incentives and disincentives or punitive measures. And we're probably okay at the incentives here, mm -hmm. but no one wants to introduce fuel taxes limits on the, you know, bans or abolition on the sale of diesel or petrol vehicles, which they're using in many countries overseas, right, targets. Low emission zones where you're only letting particular vehicles in there, which is an access type policy. All of those things that are considered punitive are not politically appetizing. I and mean, we, we haven't really seen a, an adoption of those. We're happy to put grants out for charging and for the transition purchase of vehicles. But actually, we're not going to get the outcome that we want without going down that task of, uh, or that path of regulation, some punitive measures, and some of those disincentives to the continued purchase of diesel and petrol vehicles. And that's a challenge, and that's unappetizing in some quarters, but actually, if you look at the rest of the world, it's everywhere. So does that mean that zero emissions vehicles are the end of fun? 
At the fun police can I, I don't know, Matt. Not, how do you define fun? <laughs> I do like a large ball V8. <laughs> <laughs> but how about you in your EV putting your foot down? Does that give you a smile on your face? Of course it does. Is that fun? But I like having options. I like having options. Yeah. There we yeah. go. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Look, I think, Matt, you might be the summary of this. I don't think it brings the end of fun, but it, it opens up different options to fun yeah. and different ways in which of experiencing transport. For different reasons, they are better and for different reasons, they probably they might be worse in mm. people's emotional uh, feelings when it comes to transport. But I definitely don't think it ends fun. It might change it, let's say. That was an awesome answer. I think I should do a podcast and have you on as a guest. <laughs> <laughs> I, I was actually going to say the same thing. It changes. I mean, it probably brings it around full circle where I've always had that same passion for mm. transport mm. and the interaction of a human with a machine yeah. and making it do things that are quite amazing, whether it's driving fast or whether it's hauling 65 tonnes up a hill. They're quite amazing feats. Mm. And I think that the proposition of moving to a, let's call it an EV, but a zero emission vehicle has a lot of positives in that whole assessment of not just how fast does it go and does it make enough noise or pollution or whatever it is, but- I the, never said I wasn't shallow. No, but, no. <laughs> <laughs> but the utility of it, right? And the convenience and the noise and the, you know, in some cases you actually don't want to make a lot of noise, right? Whether that's sneaking into the garage at home at night or whether that's- <laughs> whether that's I'm not having quite a, sure how to respond. <laughs> yeah. Having a bunch of personally attacked <laughs> running around on mm. the road. So there's attributes, I think, that- can be brought into that definition of fun. But it, you drive a fast CV and one that mm. does a lot of the functions and, and actually steers very well and it doesn't mm. have to be the end of fun. It's just missing the noise element maybe. Yeah, fair point. It's a change, like it's, you said. It's a change, yeah. But I think, you know, as, as you know, the, the way in which they deliver power is different. So it's fun because it's different. The way in which they find traction is different, yep. probably maybe arguably better, you know, but there is that lack of noise. So, yep. you know, it's a, it, for me, it's a, it's a new case of fun. It opens up more doors for fun. Do you have the same opinion of the FL Volvo that we have? <laughs> the FL Volvo. Asking for a friend. Asking for a friend. My opinion <laughs> on the FL Volvo. Wow, that's, this is quite candid actually, to be fair. I actually thoroughly enjoy driving it. I find it more like my car than I do a truck. And I think that might be a combination of the, we'll have to get you out and driving one soon, Mark. Yeah, uh, the electric, and this isn't just a Volvo thing, you know, electric drivetrain, limited number of gears, the way in which it delivers power and, and transfers that to the ground, it, for me, is a, a big improvement in all the information and interviews you've done, Matt, with drivers and end users of the vehicles as well in the is in the heavy vehicle space is that it's a much nicer place to work in, whether it's, you know, any EV, you know, to be fair, yeah. no noise, no emissions, no smell, yeah. reduced vibrations, easier to drive in in general. In doing the task it can do or should do, it is a nicer place to work. Look, I was working in the truck industry when we introduced semi-automated transmissions or automated transmissions. And I remember the, you know, the message from industry was, oh, real drivers aren't going to adopt those things. And you see them everywhere now, right? Mm. You see them in line haul trucks, you see them in urban distribution trucks. We don't offer a manual truck at all. And this is what I'm saying, yeah. Mm. So, mm. And, and same with synchromesh transmissions, right? Same with airbag suspensions. And there's a transition that the industry goes through. And if the attributes of the new product or the innovation are better for whatever reasons, people will adopt it and... There'll still be a, a holdout, let's say, a, a cohort where I'm not suggesting that their belief system is wrong or whatever, but there are they value those attributes, their old attributes for whatever reason, and they'll just become a diminishing minority, I think. Now, I suppose the a good way to sort of wind things up would be that this this whole um, discussion around zero emissions is really marked by milestones, right? So it, 
20, 25 targets, 20, 35 targets, 20, 40, you know, everything mm. around this discussion is we're going to be here by then, we're going to be here by then, you know, and everybody's saying it. So I'm, I'd be interested to see what your take on what's our transport landscape look like by the end of this decade. That is a really good question to end on, I think. And actually, as we would do with all of our projects, I've probably got several answers because we, we would segment the fleet. So in the passenger car space, whether that cars, SUVs, utilities, vans, I think the 2030 landscape is going to look totally different. And it's, it won't necessarily be driven just by cost reductions or total cost of ownership. As I said before, the attributes of a zero emission vehicle can be a significant advantage over another vehicle. I mean, you talk to people who own and drive EVs and they're not going back. It's a nicer car to drive in 90% of use cases, maybe not on the weekend drive up in the mountains where you want to make noise for some people. But then you look at the bus space and the bus space, as I said, we've done a bit of work in, in this area, that's going to be an even quicker transition. So it, pretty much every state government transit agency has committed to zero emission vehicles either starting from a 2025 timeline where all of the new purchases will be zero emission, or in the case of New South Wales, by 2030, every bus in their fleet will be zero emissions, right? So that includes early retirements and so forth. So that sector will look feel completely different in 2030. And that's, that's probably the fastest moving sector for various reasons. Trucks, a bit slower. I think that that wholesale change that you're talking about, maybe that's a 2040 transitional proposition. And I'll give you an example of why. So we've done some modeling that says, let's take the, the current government's, the Labor government's 43% emissions reduction target by 2030, which was just adopted for legislation and submitted to the UNFCCC. To get to that point in transport, and I know you don't have to get to that point in every sector, but if you wanted to achieve that reduction in transport, you would need to see in trucks, every single vehicle purchased from today, 2022, 2023, as a zero emission truck. You'd have to mandate it to get a 40% reduction. So that's not going to happen. It's not going to happen that quickly because A, we're not going to mandate it and there just aren't the number of models available. So I think the truck sector is going to transition more slowly. And part of the challenge there is if we want to talk about zero emission transport, the freight task is going up. 20% in the next 10 years, 40% in the next 20 years. If we don't do anything about it, you're going to get an increase in emissions of 20%, right? So just to maintain today's level of emissions, you would need to reduce by 20% from the increase that's going to happen naturally just through moving more stuff around the country. So I think maybe 2040 is a more realistic timeline to see that wholesale transition, but certainly by 2030, you know, given what we see in terms of model availability and the level of uptake, there were 15 zero emission trucks, oh, sorry, lower zero emission trucks sold in the last six months out of a market of what, 15,000? So it's just trickled today and that's not going to turn around super quickly in the next seven years. Sounds like you've got some work to do, Tim. I think to summarise that for me, I, you know, Mark, I agree with you. I think especially comparison to light vehicles and buses, you know, trucks will be a little bit different in terms of the uptake. But overall, by 2030, what it looks like to the end consumer, what you see travelling past you, especially in built-up areas, there will be a large number of EV trucks, or so zero emission trucks moving around the place by 2030. Mm. We may not have the... The majority of the fleet turned over by that stage, but I think overall it won't be like, oh, there's one. No. And I've seen it 
I've seen one in six months or something like that. It's like I see a couple a day. I see a few a day. And that will, seven, eight years, I think it will be a shift. It'll be mm. an interesting shift to see when and how it happens. Yeah. And I think getting there, getting to that end goal, we all want to see those zero emission vehicles out in the market. As I said, that's the mission of my company. I think there needs to be more thinking around the transition fuels as well in that there will be a time where we'll be able to have zero emission vehicles for everything. But in that gap, you know, one of the things that hasn't really received much attention is zero emission combustion fuels. If your objective is CO2, then renewable diesel it's fine. is a viable <laughs> yeah. alternative. You know, stock trucks that carry two and a half thousand litres of diesel out mm. in central Australia, mm. they're not going hydrogen or battery electric anytime soon. Nope. But you could turn them to a zero emission yep. or at least a CO2 either, vehicle. Either reduce, uh, reduce their emissions yeah. or, you know, yeah, remove yep. their CO2. Um, yeah. yeah, sure. And, and I think there's probably not enough investment interest policy in that space Agreed. to help fill that gap. So yeah, yeah. and you know, in the previous podcast we spoke about you know attacking it on it and uh, on every which angle. Yeah, yes. It's not just about the hydrogen truck. It's not just about the electric truck. It's about you know in the middle as well. Like what are those other vehicles doing, and and how can we improve their efficiency, implement new trucks, new technologies, yeah. or alternative fuels to them as well, and then growing that space yeah. to see a, a demand high enough, the costings are right. Well, supply is enough even, to be fair. It's about supply. At the moment, it's all about <laughs> supply. supply. <laughs> Hopefully, we're having this podcast yeah. in another two years' time. We're not just talking about supply issues yeah. where you know we're, we're over the hill, but at this point in time, there seems to be no end. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Because I think that the case for transitioning in some segments is there already. The business case mm, makes definitely. sense. It stacks up. Mm. Fantastic. Well, thank you very much for your time today, Mark. It's been a really good chat. Well, thanks very much for having me along. I think you guys are doing a a great job and we're all trying to achieve the same thing, I think. So thanks, thanks. for helping out and doing your part, Mark. Thank you. No worries. <laughs> Thank you for listening to Emerging Possibilities. Send your comments, suggestions and questions to emerging.possibilities at volvo.com. And of course, remember to rate and review this show.